Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke. And before we get into today's show, I just want to give a shout out to all of our show sponsors. Firstly, upmentorship.com, which is one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. The Ultimate Performance Mentorship is 20 hours of top class online video strength and conditioning information available for instant access right at your fingertips. To find out more, head over to upmentorship.com, which is linked up in the show notes. Check it out and help support the show. Secondly, I want to give a shout out to Altus360 and the Altus Foundation Coaching Course, which are two outstanding online resources for any practitioner in the sports preparation profession. Be sure to head over to the show notes and check out these unique platforms. Thirdly, I want to give a huge shout out to Yosef Johnson at Ultimate Athlete Concepts. Ultimate Athlete Concepts is a multifaceted company providing the most sophisticated scientific material in sports science. Ultimate Athlete Concepts is the world's leading resource for translated sports preparation educational material. Next, I want to give a shout out to Papi's National Sports Performance Association, which is an online certification platform for professionals within the sports preparation profession. Currently, the NSPA has four certifications available. Speed and Agility, delivered by Lee Taft. Olympic Weightlifting, delivered by Will Fleming. Nutrition, delivered by Dr. Chris Moore. And Program Design, delivered by Coach Robert Dos Remedios. For more information on the NSPA, be sure to check out all the links in the show notes. Finally, I want to thank another brainchild of Pat Beast, Athletes Acceleration, which is another online medium that delivers excellent continuing educational resources for strength and conditioning professionals. And just like with all of our other sponsors, you can check out the show notes to get links to all the available products that Athletes Acceleration has to offer. A full disclosure, except for Altus 360 and the Altus Foundation Coaching Course, I am an affiliate to all of the show sponsors. Lastly, before today's interview, I just wanted to let all listeners know that the podcast is now on Patreon. If you feel like you are in a position to support the show, I would truly appreciate any donations you would be willing to make to help support the podcast. Okay, that's enough rambling. Let's get into today's interview. Hey guys, just before I introduce today's guest, I want to bring it to your awareness that the Irish Strength Institute will be hosting their annual symposium on the 28th and 29th of July at the Grand Hotel in Malahide in Dublin, Ireland. Now the lineup that the ISI team put together for this symposium is absolutely outstanding. Some of the speakers that will be presenting at the symposium will be Dr. Eric Serrano, Dr. Ken Kanakin, the founder of the Swiss Conference, Victoria Felker, Alexandro Ferretti, as well as legendary coach Isvan Javorik. Yes, the godfather of barbell complexes, as well as a host of other outstanding speakers that you can find out about when you go to the registration page. Now, as listeners of this podcast, the ISI is offering you guys a 50 euro discount when you register for the event. The link along with the discount code and all of the event details will be linked up in the show notes. Thanks, guys. And we're back. Pat and I are back with part three in our Mass 2 series. Make sure to go over to the show notes and check out part one and part two if you have not listened to those parts already. On this episode, Pat continues to tell us about his trip to China last year. Don't you want to get on the plane? You seriously have to listen to this. It is too funny to be true. 
Pat talks about the reckoning seminar he did with Bill Hartman and Doug Kitijan at Mike Ranfone's facility at the end of 2017. We briefly talk about the importance of having contingency plans. Pat then discusses the connection between Jacksonian dissolution, polyvagal theory, and increasing rate pressure product. Pat speaks about the importance of the environment in optimizing size and strength gains. Pat and I discuss how time is a very powerful constraint that can be manipulated within the training process. And finally, Pat and I discuss the need to increase specific training volume as one's career progresses. Guys, this was an absolutely outstanding episode with Pat. Like every episode has been up until now, anytime we've had Pat on the show. And I know you're going to really, really enjoy it. Pat Davidson, as always, it is a pleasure to have you on my podcast. Every time I have you booked in for a chat on my show, I get excited. Even, and you know, I was about to say it's like Christmas, and it's kind of funny because it is Christmas time at the moment. Uh, but uh, it's always a pleasure to have you back on, my friend. Just uh, give us a little update on what's been going on since we spoke last month. And actually, you need to give us a little bit more detail about the remember we said about the, the China trip. You were like, oh man, it was just. Oh. Yeah, well, you know, just speaking of Christmas, I like to think that I'm I'm an awful lot like Santa Claus for for most people because uh, I, I'll, I'm never afraid to come down anybody's chimney and empty my sack. So, um, <laughs> you know, there's there's that to um, I just feel like that puts people into the spirit of giving. And, and par- I, I just and part three is underway, people. Yeah, it. I'm just always ready to just give it good and give it hard. So uh, there's there's all those things that I think of when it comes to Christmas. Beautiful. But um, yeah, so so China, um, you know, it, it was just one of those things where I, I spoke with the some of the other people that went, and I feel like everything went very smoothly for me. And I, I just think that maybe I was kind of the forgotten toy or something like that. Like they just kind of forgot to update me on things. Um, but, you know, essentially, uh, like I, I got to China and when I was at the airport, I just, I couldn't find whoever was supposed to be picking me up. And, uh, I had to email my contact person and I was, I was telling her like, there's the driver that you said was going to be here is not here. There's no one with a, a sign with my name on it. So she sent me an email back with a picture of the person and a picture of the sign that they were holding. And it was this green sign that had uh, Chinese writing on it that apparently was for me. So I, I don't know how I mistook the sign as not being uh, f- for me, but, but that went – so and, and it's, it's real comical. I still have the picture of this sign. It's, it's just kind of like, why would I know that that's me? Like, I don't speak any Chinese. And there's no reason that the person holding the sign should not have known. Like, like I stood out like a sore thumb in China. They Nobody should, else they, they looks had like a, me. They should have had a picture of a mitochondria that's in a barbell. That's for me. That, I would have known something was up. But, uh, you know, I, I eventually got squared away. Uh, it was a long trip from, like, door to door traveling. It was probably about, like, somewhere between 27 and 30 hours of traveling. So I was I was exhausted by the time I got to the hotel, and um, you know I, I went up to my room. I opened the door, and it was like stepping into a sauna. It was you know a solid eighty five to ninety degrees in that room. Um, well, Fahrenheit for for us in the U.S. that still use that. We're, I think we're the only country that still uses that, but it was very hot. <clears throat> so I, I go over to the thermostat and I just start hitting the down button. 
And um, again, it's in Chinese. So like the numbers, I don't know what any of these symbols actually mean, but I just kept hitting the down button until it stopped changing symbols. And, um, you know, I, I went, took a shower, got out of the shower. It's still really hot. I could hear the system going. <clears throat> I laid in the bed and I just had no blankets on me. I was just profusely sweating. And I was just thinking to myself, like, I'll, I'll pass out. I'm so tired. There's no way I won't just fall asleep. But maybe 30 minutes goes by. I'm just so miserably hot. I had to get up and go downstairs and try to communicate with the girl at the desk and um, using Google Translate. And eventually I get it across to her. I don't know why she didn't understand the message as I was dripping sweat on the counter. But um, she finally understood I was saying that my room was too hot, that I wanted to change rooms uh, because the thermostat wasn't working. Mm. And then she was like, oh, no, 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 no. We've turned off the air conditioning function for the entire building. Uh, meanwhile, it's still like 85 degrees out in this part of China. So I, that was like one of the most miserable things I've, I've ever heard in my entire life. Now, thankfully, they, they did rustle up a, uh, a fan for me. And that fan basically saved my life for the entire remainder of the trip. It's a simple uh, things, isn't it? I, when she told me there was a fan, like I, I went from like the most dejected mental state possible to like uh, tremendous joy. Uh, but so that that was like kind of started there, and then the next day, I, I you know I, I was probably working on five hours of sleep in like a forty-eight hour window, um, so I, I just felt terrible, and I I noticed on the uh, the elevator for the building that there was a spa on the third floor. So I went to this spa just to see what they had. And uh, there was a place where they had like uh, it was like a massage area. So I go over to the girl at the desk and I was like, yeah, I'd like to book a massage. And um, she's like, well, there's nobody here now. I can have somebody here in, in 20 minutes. I was like, All right, that's, that's fine. How much does it cost? So she tells me the, the Chinese currency number, and I'm like, I have, I have no idea what that means. How much is that in, in U.S. dollars? So we do the math on it, and it comes out to apparently $9 for an hour. So I was, I was pretty psyched to hear that. Um, I was like, definitely, I'll definitely book this, no question about it. I come back 20 minutes later, and there's like a different girl sitting on a couch. And I'm like, are you the, the massage girl? And she indicates that she is. So we um, – <clears throat> She's like, all right, let's let's go. So she brings me to a room like next door, and it's just like a hotel room. It's not like a massage room with a massage table. And uh, I was like, all right, well, this this looks way less comfortable, but uh, I'll take whatever I can get. So I'm like, all right, uh, the price is this, right? And she's like, oh no, 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 the price is this number. And I'm like, I, again, I have no idea what the number means. I'm like, uh, I need to know what that is in, in U.S. dollars, and it's $200 this time. So I'm just like, whoa, this is a huge upcharge. Why does this – like I was told that this was going to be $9. Why does this cost so much more? And um, she's like – looks at me real confused, and she's like, don't you want to get on the plane? And I was like, no, I definitely don't want to get on the plane. I just got off multiple planes. The last thing I want to do is get on another plane. <laughs> And she's just like, you don't want to fly? And I was like, I don't, I just don't know what that means. All I want to know is why this is so much more expensive. So then she has to give me the hand signal, the universal signal for sex used across the entire world of the circled up index finger and thumb with the other index finger going into that circle back and forth in and out. And 
then I at least realized why this massage was going to cost so much more uh, than the original price. But it was honestly the last person that I would want to engage in this with, and uh, and and it just wasn't what I was looking for. Uh, so I, I said, uh, I was like, I just, I just want a massage. Can't I just get a massage? And she was like, oh, no, 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 no. I don't do that. So I, that was, uh, that was kind of like, you gotta be kidding me. And where did, uh, that, where, uh, where did the $9 person go? I don't know. I don't know what happened. I actually later saw the original $9 girl and she was like, what happened to you? I, you know, I, I had someone waiting for you and you never came back. And I was like, Oh no no! I came back and I met someone, and they tried to upsell me. And she was like, "I don't know how that happened." So I, I don't know how any of this actually happened, but it was fitting for the trip. You know, the following day was the day of the presentation, and I was told that they wanted a case study. So I had put together a case study of a guy that went through Mass Two, mm. and uh, we had data on this guy, um, like on every possible thing you could you could track from sleep to HRV to volume intensity uh, pre and post measures uh, you know macronutrients calories like just everything um, <clears throat> I think it was a pretty comprehensive case study and you know that morning the translator who was supposed to be working with me comes up to me and she's like uh, excuse me the uh, organizers of the event got a chance to take a look at your presentation. And no, they don't want it. Like they, they, they. Uh, there must have been some kind of communication error. We, we want something that's going to be like PRI and fitness tied together. Like, and I was like, well, I don't have that presentation because nobody told me that that was what you guys wanted me to present on. I've got this other case study that, like, here's the email that you ask for a case study in. Here's the email I sent back with the topic I was going to present on. Here's the email where I emailed you the exact presentation, and they were just like, "Yeah, well, it got something got missed, messed up with the communication." So uh, nobody here wants to hear about this guy. And they're pointing at the picture of the guy on the first slide who it was about. Uh, they're like, uh, "No one's interested in this guy." So <clears throat> you know, I'm <clears throat> I'm both a combination of upset and extremely excited because. I knew that I was going to get a chance to troll this guy with this information just to tell him that no one in China is interested in him and no one in China wants to hear anything about him, which I've done multiple times since then. But uh, I essentially had to make up a, a presentation off the top of my head uh, in, in China working with a translator, uh, and it was just it, – it, it was one of those things where it was like, well – Everything else in this trip has gone wrong, so the main thing might as well just go completely wrong as well. But uh, that's that's sort of how that went down. Uh, so it just from from beginning to end, everything that could have been miscommunicated and uh, disastrous ended up that way. But I still had a good time, and it led to some pretty good stories. And then uh, there's a really classic soon-to-be-released video, I believe, from a certain seminary with a, a Doug Kajij and a Bill Hartman. Can you tell any more about that? Yeah, so uh, Michael Ranfone hosted myself, Bill Hartman, and Doug Kajijian, and we called this presentation The Reckoning. It's two days. It actually is already available for video sales. Um, 
So I don't have the link off the top of my head for exactly where you would get that. Yeah. But um, you know, it's it's with Ranphone's other stuff, but it's uh, you know, I think it's I think it's a one of a kind right now. Um, you know, I did a my mine was completely just on the brain. Uh, you know, like the other guys went and and really like I, I feel like Bill just broke down the importance of why building your own model is just like the single most important thing that you can do in this profession and the steps by which you should go about doing that. He presented his model of, of how he breaks down people that he works with and, and the approaches that he uses. It, it was quite frankly, like a completely game changing presentation for me to be able to hear. And I feel like, uh, you know, the difficulty of me putting my presentation and all the work I put into it was worth it just to hear his presentation. Mm, mm. Um, because I mean, it just lit a huge fire under my ass and got me to completely try to map out my model of how I work with people after he got done with, with his part. Um, you know, Doug really, I think does such a good job of explaining or drawing comparisons between the way that the military operates and the way that we probably should be operating as professionals in our field in terms of like, you know, if you're under stress as a military, um, you know, uh, as a soldier, like during your, like, you know, you're on a mission and things go wrong, it can become very stressful. And the military does not have you relying on your intuitive decision-making during those points of stress, like, mm-hmm. like everything has been predetermined and thought through for these situations. And you're going to follow the checklist that you've learned a million times. And you're, you're, so it saves you from your own bad decision-making under stress. And he did such a great job of explaining like why that is such a crucial element. And, um, again, he kind of explained his model. He took the entire second day and kind of like explained what he does for certain people with exercises. He showed exactly what he's going to do. Um, and, and he's just so well-spoken, articulate and impressive as a, as a speaker for getting across the information that he did on subjects as uh, complicated as dynamic systems theory. So I, I just think it was, it was one of those things where, I felt honored to be included in that trio of speakers. And I, I felt like I, I held my own in, it was, to me, it was like my first call up to, to the, to the professionals level and, um, and get a chance to, to put myself out there. But it's a lot of pressure when you're, when you're up there and you're trying to hold your own against two other guys like that and not look like you're the one person that's like not up to that same level. Um, and those guys brought it and, and I, I think that I, I, um, I think I gave my own equal part of this as well. So it was, it was unbelievable. It was a great weekend. And I think that in terms of like the amount of information that you would be able to get in a, in a two day seminar, I don't, I don't see any other seminar coming close to, to what we gave on this one. Great stuff. And just on the, the military piece, you know, it reminds me like of Dan Faft. He, uh, you know, so a lot of listeners know Dan Faft is, and uh, he spends actually a good bit of time reading about 
the resiliency training that uh, that goes on in the you know within, within the within the military and you know how you can glean from that you know essential components and principles that then you can apply to athletic performance. And it also reminds me too about NASA and the astronauts. And you know, I was watching a documentary about you know when they first really started you know going out into space and orbiting the Earth, and then the plan to go to the moon and you know that the the astronauts were just like pounded over and over and over with protocol and protocol and protocol and actually in the documentaries they were like the amount of times that things had fucked up in the missions that no one like in the general population knew about that that only, the only reason like it, it, it didn't destroy the mission was that the astronauts were so well trained not to panic and had such good resiliency and they had these mm. th- these already built in habits of what to do in these certain times that like a disaster was avoided like there was one time like where like Neil Armstrong, it was before he went to the moon. He went down to orbit, and when he's coming back into orbit, like something went drastically wrong. Like and like the, his like shuttle going back in was spiraling out of control. And they're like, if he doesn't get this under control, he's gonna pass out and, and die. Like this is gonna be a disaster for like the whole mass, the whole NASA mission and all this. And there was another one too, where one guy he was doing a spacewalk, and he got tangled up with the fucking rope and all this, and it was just like. I think he had to like release air out of his his glove or something to get to to get like some sort of like compression inside his suit to go down so he could like you know reorganize the whole thing so he could eventually get back in but all just mad stuff but again it just goes back to like they were just absolutely drilled in these protocols in case something went wrong so just reminds me of that too and then remind me that Dan Fast saying that you should nearly apply the same sort of protocols to, to athletes for athletic preparation performance like Michael Phelps with the the goggles in the water he was prepared for the for, for the for the uncertainty of that you know yeah I, I you know and like, I know we're going to get into talking about mass too, but I think that that's something in the beginning of the book that I talk about where it's like, um, you know, it was, it was where I was talking about the movie Bloodsport mm. and that, you know, the greatest coaches in the world are the ones that prepare the athlete that they're working for, for every possible situation that they could face. And, and that level of planning on the coach's part is difficult to do. And to me, it's purely Daniel Kahneman, System 1, System 2 stuff, where you're go- if you're out there and you haven't planned for something and practiced something, you're now completely operating in System 1 territory. And, and it's a poorly uh, prepared System 1. It's just your intuitive, snap judgment mind that's probably going to be wrong. It's going to be full of bias, and it's going to commit heuristics and its thought processes and you're you're probably not going to get very good results um, versus like if you've seen a situation before and you've broken it down and you've practiced this thing and you've deliberated on it, then you're probably going to have a much better outcome or the chances that the outcome is going to be better are probably much higher. And um, and I, I just see that sports is becoming more and more dominated by athletes that have been coached by people that that have broken down every element like in in the US with uh with the NFL with football um you know the the New England Patriots have have clearly dominated and I think the biggest reason for that is probably Bill Belichick and you know he practices every situation of the game uh, I think that's his strongest element. They, you know, they won the Super Bowl against the Seattle Seahawks mm-hmm. a few years ago, and they won it on the an, an interception on the goal line to end the game. 
And the athlete that, that made that interception, Malcolm Butler, said, like, hey, you know, like, Belichick had us practicing this exact same situation and this exact same play. And, you know, the play that was called, it's been criticized a million times because the Seahawks didn't run the ball with Marshawn Lynch at the one. But in actuality, the call was the correct call in terms of the down distance and time left on the clock because it's the lowest percent likelihood play in the NFL for an, a turnover to be committed on. And if it wasn't successful, the clock would have stopped, giving the Seahawks two more plays rather than if they ran the ball, they would have had only one more play if it wasn't successful. Yeah, You, may, you mentioned this in part one about Belichick uh, rehearsing that exact play that the Seahawks Yeah. Okay, so, yeah, I've already been there, done that. It's funny, it's like I, I talk about the same stuff over and over again. <laughs> but, yeah, it's like the guy knew it because he didn't have to think. It just mm-hmm. happened automatically. But apparently Tony Dungy, uh, who, who won a he won Super Bowl with the Colts, he, because in the book, The Power of Habit, they, they talk about Tony Dungy had a very similar philosophy in terms of, he, he, he said, like, his whole thing was, like, I don't want my players to think when they play. I want it to be just habitual. Yep. So, yeah, same exact thing. But you don't have that response unless you've someone's thought about it yeah. for a long time and deliberated on it. So yeah, it's I think that's so it's just more more and more like sports get dominated by that. You and I think that that um, you know fitness and strength and conditioning like our world of performance has to be it has to move more and more in that direction. Yeah. You know, you can't just be the coach that's just winging it out there on a daily basis. And, like, you're not Charlie Francis. You don't get to just kind of, like, look at what's in front of you and make this genius decision. Like, there's only one of him every hundred years or something like that. You need to follow protocol. You need to think this through before any of it happens. And you need to go with your checklist because otherwise you're probably going to make the wrong decision. So, where we left off the last day was on polyvagal theory. So, on the last episode, we left off talking about the rape pressure product, and then we got into polyvagal theory and this quote by Charles Darwin in his book, Emotions in Man and Animals. So, maybe we'll just pick pick up again with that quote, speak a little bit about polyvagal theory and the work of Stephen Porges, and then that kind of brought us into why uh, you say here on... um, on a page here in the book, he said, my personal favorite circuit for driving rate pressure product levels with resistance training is the 30-30 circuit. So maybe we'll pick it up from there, Pat. Sure. I'll just reiterate the quote from Darwin because it's so good that it deserves mm. uh, to be said a couple times, just like how Belichick is so good that I need to talk about him at least three more times uh, during this, this multi-part podcast. <clears throat> Anyways, uh, When the mind is strongly excited, we might expect that it would instantly affect in a direct manner the heart. And this is universally acknowledged. When the heart is affected, it reacts on the brain. And the state of the brain, again, reacts through the vagus nerve on the heart. So that under any excitement, there will be much mutual action and reaction between these, the two most important organs of the body. So it's it's just as brilliant as it gets. And, you know, again, like... I feel like if if you go back and you actually read some of Darwin's stuff, you're like, there's nothing this guy didn't know. Like, how smart was this guy? He's he's terrifyingly smart. Uh, his insight is is almost like mind numbing. 
but you know, when I when I think about this, I just start thinking to myself, well, you know, when I start seeing people where their heart rate becomes elevated, their brain starts working very differently. You know, like, and it, it's it's a good thing that we talked about this whole contingency planning and stress phenomenon um, because stress is going to be associated with uh, an increase in heart rate, an increase in sympathetic output, and all of the, it's a cyclical phenomenon. The heart starts beating more forcefully and more rapidly, and you're going to get a whole bunch of different afferent information going back to the brain, which is going to change the, the functioning of the brain. And as the functioning of the brain changes, it's going to have an efferent output going back to the heart, which is going to further increase rate and force of contraction of the heart. Um, so it's, it's kind of like the things that I think about with this to just get to the point as quickly as I can is that I, when, when I think about the polyvagal theory, there's a few areas that jump out at me. Uh, and one of them is this concept of Jacksonian dissolution. Hmm. And Jacksonian dissolution says that as stressors or threat rises uh, for organisms, those organisms are going to shift backwards in time in terms of like – our species, like we've made adaptations that have led to the presentation of modern Homo sapiens. You know, like our our big toe is in line with the other toes as opposed to sticking out the side of the foot for for tree climbing. Uh, we've made other adaptations in terms of like a frontal cortex being much more prominent as compared to other animals. <clears throat> you know, our species, like mammals overall, have this 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 three part autonomic system consisting of a dorsal motor nucleus reptilian vagal center, uh, which is associated with <clears throat> freezing and death feigning behaviors of reptiles. Mm. Uh, it's, we have a sympathetic nervous system, which is a mobilization strategy uh, component. And we also have a neo-mammalian um, ventral vagal complex vagus system, which is the one that's, that's you know, that's the good parasympathetic system that we think of. It's a social parasympathetic center. It's one that controls the heart primarily when things are working well. You know, when, when you have a neomammalian ventral vagal complex system controlling your heart at rest, that's when you're going to see good heart rate variability scores. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> when you're confronted with stress, what should happen is you put the brakes on your ventral vagal complex, and that allows heart rate to increase. Which which, uh, which is what happened in China. <laughs> for the most part. Uh, and then when stress goes away, you should be able to to just, uh, you know, take the brakes off of that thing and allow your ventral vagal complex to rise back to the forefront. And, <clears throat> excuse me, when you're operating with the ventral vagal complex guiding the heart, you're also demonstrating things like like uh, social social activity, like you're approaching other animals, uh, you're engaging with them, you're you're feeling pretty good. Things like play will spontaneously emerge. Uh, you'll smile, you'll listen to vocal communications, uh, and then you know you perceive threat and you drop that off. It seems to be about a, a heart rate of 100 is the critical cutoff point, like. If you're at rest and your heart rate's 60, the ventral vagal complex is, is sort of uh, adjusting the, the SA node to 
fire at that rate. And then as stress rises, like you'll, you'll put the brakes on the ventral vagal complex, which allows heart rate to rise up to about a hundred, which is the intrinsic rate of the heart. Like if there was no autonomic nervous system talking to the heart, it would beat somewhere around a hundred. Anything over 100 is due to increased sympathetic input to the SA node, mm. which, which picks it up be above and beyond that 100 number. So, uh, you know, as stress rises, you're going to shift more and more in the sympathetic direction. Uh, if stress becomes excessive beyond that which the sympathetic system can handle, you'll, you'll shift over into that reptilian uh, dorsal vagal complex, and you'll actually just begin to kind of shut down. And and we can observe this in the behavior of other mammals. It's easier to think about other mammals. Like if you think about a bear cub, a, um, a bear cub is around its mother and its other siblings, and it feels pretty comfortable. It engages in play. It's a, it's a social animal at that point. And then all of a sudden, maybe it, it, a stressor happens. Like it's it gets separated from its mother. It doesn't know where its mother is. The first thing it's going to try to do is is vocalize. It's going to use a still a a, a, a vagal uh, strategy. The same way that if something's bothering you, Robbie, like you're probably going to reach out to a friend and communicate and say, "Hey, you know, like this happened to me, and I'm I'm not doing so well." You're going to go with a modern behavioral strategy to do that. Now, let's say you know you get no feedback from that approach. Uh, let's say the baby bear gets no feedback from that approach. Now it's probably going to start using a sympathetic strategy. Uh, it's going to start crying. It's going to start uh, making louder noises. It might start running around more aggressively. Uh, it's, it's going to use, um, you know, just, just a more, I would just call it a mobilized strategy mm. or a fight or flight type of strategy to, to try to reduce its its threat. Uh, if nothing happens, if the mother doesn't come back for hours at this point, the, the, the bear cub is now probably going to just give up. It's going to go into a shutdown mode, and uh, it might just lay there and not do anything, which is a maladaptive strategy for mammals because we can't just kind of go into like a, a thermic state that would – you know, be just a low-level existence type of, of, of strategy that a reptile could use under such conditions. Um, and, and really, like, if you talk to people that are, that are very wise with the omega wave, it's kind of like uh, when people are in a sympathetic overtraining state, it's, it's not a great situation, but it's much, much better as compared to the athlete that's now in the parasympathetic overtrained state. Um, and, and, again, it's all stress and threat driven, um, that as stress and threat rises, you'll just shift to older and older uh, anatomical adaptations that, that kind of mark the time periods, the epochs of your species' evolutionary history. You always go backwards, and those older systems are always more simple, they're always more reliable, uh, but they're not necessarily – they have less variability, and, um, and they tend to also come with behavioral presentations that you would consider to be more maladaptive in some ways. Um, so I, I think about this, like how does this present during exercise? Well, on a daily basis, like I see people exercising in front of me, and 
as they start going, it's kind of like, uh, you know, with moderate intensity, they, uh, they still might talk to you if they're doing like light, easy aerobic stuff. It's kind of fun. It's playful. Then uh, like you increase the intensity and you see this person start like with their eyes becoming more and more focused. They're, they're definitely using more of like a sympathetic strategy. Uh, and, and at a certain, and they might start also presenting, uh, behaviors. They, I, I have plenty of people that start swearing at me or, um, you know, acting almost like children. That's, that's nothing new swearing at you. No, definitely not. Um, and, and then eventually if it's just excessive for people you, you just see them start giving up and shutting down. Uh, so I, I think, and I bet if you have a heart rate monitor on these people, you can you can pretty much predict when that's going to happen. The only problem with the heart rate monitor is that it doesn't have the ability to measure blood pressure. Because when I think about like this whole thing with Darwin and the brain and the heart being so intimately connected, I mean it's all in polyvagal theory. I won't go into every detail of <clears throat> you know uh, which autonomic centers talk to which parts of the heart and all that kind of stuff, but. Uh, Excuse me. When you think about this whole thing, it's that the brain is perceiving threat, and the single most important uh, thing that it's it's reading and analyzing to determine level of threat is the activity of the heart. And the two things that the heart would be demonstrating to the brain as indicative of an overall stressful environment would be heart rate and blood pressure. Like nothing is more threatening to the heart than having to create tremendous force to overcome significant pressure with a high heart rate simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think about like, well, what sorts of things would increase blood pressure? Well, the more muscle mass that you're using, you're going to be occluding blood vessels, which will reflect backwards on the heart and hold the semilunar valve shut with more afterload force so that you have to create greater preload to overcome and push blood out through the left ventricle through that semilunar valve. Uh, and if you have a consistent blood pressure, and I've never measured blood pressure on people doing something like the 30-30, but uh, my guess is that it's it's going to be higher than if you're you know doing a, a, a running protocol. Um, yeah, maybe gonna, just, just with that, uh, sorry to cut in real quick, but... You gave a really good reason as to why that would be. You were talking about the protein coupling and elasticity of running versus probably more so just, con- you know, the more contractile tension and the blood constriction of when we're doing something like resistance training and, and the different effects that has on venous return. Yeah, yeah, you're 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 just you're challenging the heart both from a venous return perspective. Uh, although with venous return, like you know, the thing that causes venous return is is going to be. Uh, mechanical, like it's the, it's called the skeletal muscle pump yeah. for venous return. And it's, it's because veins don't have their own internal smooth muscle to push blood back to the right side of the yeah. heart. Yeah. They, they're dependent upon muscular activity to squeeze them almost like a tube of toothpaste to send blood in, in the one direction it can go in versus on the arterial side, the, um, skeletal muscle when it's contracting can actually start to clamp down on arteries and capillaries, which would prevent blood from being able to make it to the tissues. Mm -hmm. So, and, and again, if I'm clamping down on the arteries, 
it's it's going to just reflect backwards all the way back to the heart and increase pressure at that point that the heart has to overcome to pump blood out of. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that whenever you've got if, – if you have high heart rate, you're going to see people behaviorally shifting down this Jacksonian dissolution slide and showing you more and more primitive behaviors. Mm. You know, if I start coupling high heart rate with high blood pressure, I'm going to see this even more dramatically. Um, I'm going to see people literally start acting like animals uh, or like children or whatever. And, and again, I just see this on a daily basis. Like I increase stress from an exercise standpoint and behaviorally you act like anything but a modern human being from a, a psychological and an emotional presentation. And, um, John, and it's so funny you say that because you do see clients like that when they get to any bit of discomfort and like, you know, they've just become assholes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 100%. Um, and, and, and it's a good thing because they're actually just showing you a sympathetic strategy in my opinion. Um, but I just think about this in terms of everything that we were, we've been talking about regarding contingency plans and checklists and making sure you don't make bad decisions under these stressful times. Because I think that, that most of your turnovers in sports and your critical mm-hmm. bad plays, like I think championships are lost a lot of times rather than won. Yeah. And minimizing the, the bad plays is probably going to be your best strategy for winning ultimately in, in most high-level sports. John, it, it, kind so, of, it kind of reminds me of I, I recently just had Milad Janovic on the podcast, and he was speaking about this, this this concept of negative knowledge versus positive knowledge, and basically negative feedback versus positive feedback. And he was saying that negative feedback is more robust in its usefulness than positive feedback. So he was like, negative feedback is when you do something, and it's like, no, that definitely doesn't work. And then positive mm. positive feedback is like. That does work, but sometimes it mightn't work. And he's kind of like, so he's like, negative feedback was a lot more, uh, was was way more robust in its usefulness in terms of like success in any sort of in any sort of domain, be it sport or business. So just going back to your, yep. like, you think championships are, are are more lost and actually won because people have more con- contingency plans to reduce risk rather than look for reward. And and also too, uh, Laden spoke about. You know, if you look at economics, and I actually read Tony Robbins' book, um, uh, Money Master Game, where he, where he interviews all the top economists and investment fucking uh, people in the world. And, like, all of them talk about asymmetric risk-reward. They always want to reduce the downside before they go into anything. They're, they're all uh, yep. they're all fucking, um, what's the word? They're all risk-averse. That's the, the first question they all ask is, how can I minimize the downside? So it's just interesting. Yeah. You know, in some of those books, you'll you'll also come across this notion of the most important thing you can do is not write a to do list, but instead to write a to not do list. Yeah, 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 yeah. What what things can I take away that are causing problems? And if I just simply subtract the the things that are problematic, uh, I'm probably going to end up. Uh, doing much better as a result of that as opposed to trying to just add new things it's just figure out what you're doing to sabotage yourself take those away so i I look at this as the exact same thing like uh if if you don't like all i do in these situations as a coach i see these people shifting psychologically into this terrible place and i'm like listen like all i need you to do is to remain calm you're you're not going to die Mm -hmm. 
you are just simply in a state right now. That's all it is. You're going to inaccurately perceive this state as being much worse than it is. Things are nowhere near as bad as you think they are right now. Um, I'm literally like talking this person off a ledge. I'm picturing them as being someone that's trying to commit suicide and just end it and be done with it. And it's like, I want you to just do your best to accurately perceive this situation. All you're doing right now is breathing hard and your heart is beating very fast and you're sweating. That's all that's happening right now. You're, you're not being threatened by someone that's going to kill you. Like, uh, that's, that's how I'm speaking to people as I'm coaching them in these situations. It's like, I need you to just kind of mentally focus on the task at hand. And I want you to simply try to execute the movement and get your repetitions. And if you do that, then you move on. You, you, you survive and advance to the next station. Um, and, and if you can, just try to perceive this, this state that you're in as positive, positively as you can. You know, so I think that, that athletes will make mistakes when they are in these fatigued, and I, and you know we we talked a little bit about like hey the, the some of the topics we're going to get into are like genome versus environment and all that kind of stuff. I view fatigue as simply an environment that you can find yourself in. Yeah. And you know it will cause different elements of your genome to present itself. And you know you can do a couple of things in terms of like can I change this environment for you? Maybe not, but maybe I can change your perception of this environment or at least familiarize you with this environment. But I think that if you've never been in that environment, now you're going to make the worst decisions you possibly can under those circumstances. So I'm looking at this and like I hate the term mental toughness. Like that's not what any of it is ever about to me. It's just familiarizing yourself with specific environments is is psychological training or tactical training. Um, it's tactical and technical training within a specific environment, in my opinion, that I'm creating with something like this because I'm simulating the environment that you'll find yourself in physiologically uh, in, in, high, in the most intense situations of certain sports. And if I can get you to familiarize yourself with that environment, familiarize yourself with the types of internal monologue that you start to perceive during those times. And you can take a step back and simply observe your own internal workings during that time. I think that that's one of my most important jobs as a physical preparation coach. Great stuff. Just something I want to say, it's going to know if on our previous podcast, we spoke about, your seven recommendations to attempt to maximize mTOR. And we also spoke about the rate pressure products. So those are the main topics. But the next question then, moving on from that, and that like everything you've spoken about so far since we got into the first sort of uh, question or area in this book about polyvagal theory is fucking absolutely fantastic. Information is fucking incredible. And you did cover some of these things at the end of our, in our first uh, episode together, but it's still great to hear these things again. It's, it's, it's really... Top class. So in terms then of using a training protocol then, Pat, this is why you, you, you really like 30-30 in terms, you know, it, you feel it, it helps develop this sort of mental training, if you like, or it develops these mental skills. Um, also, you present your best and favorite 10-circuit uh, 
10, 10, 10 exercises that you use for the 3030 circuit, which is really, really good. Um, also in the book. But um, moving on from that then, getting into this concept of environment versus our genetics and what we can manipulate. You know, I love it in the book where you, uh, you, you basically just go, environments are easier to manipulate than their genomes. And because of this fact, the very first thing that anyone who has struggled with putting mass on should do is think about how they can change their environment. So maybe let's get into like some of the environmental factors someone can manipulate to, uh, to help uh, enhance their uh, hypertrophy, decreased body fat, and basically just overall their performance. Yeah, you know, the things I think of like that are, are huge keys with the environment are, number one, the other people that you're surrounded with. Absolutely. Um, you know, it, it's, it's kind of like I don't need a great program. I just need to surround myself with monsters if I want to get bigger. And stronger. Uh, off, that, off that, though, you did make an interesting point. Now, is it, I don't know, is it actually in the book? I think it might be. But uh, you, you were saying that sometimes you like, I think you might have said it in some of our previous episodes, or we, we spoke about, but you actually kind of like 3030 sometimes by yourself because you felt, you know, if you did it with someone else, you were saying the initial mass one you done, it wasn't as good because you did it with two other guys who were using different loads and they were kind of... yeah. They, they were of a different body structure, so some of the exercises weren't uh, as applicable to you. So, and you were saying we, when you went through it the second time on your own, you felt it was far more productive. Yeah, well, that's that's definitely true. Um, you know, just because, like, the guys I was going with, like, at a certain point, like, I've been resistance training with, like, some of the strongest people I could possibly meet for a long time now. Mm. Um, you know, so it's, it's kind of like I've, I think I've checked off the box of, like, are you training with people that are appropriate people for for this phenomenon? You know, and I would have to say yes, I have been doing that. Um, so it's it's kind of like now other things probably matter more. Yeah. Like e- everything matters. It's just like how much does anything matter at any particular time? Um, and I just see like I, I can think of uh, you know at the at a Costa Rica retreat that I went to at, at Ben House's place. Um, you know, one of my friends in, in Austin, Texas, T.O. Ledesma, he's a, he's a strength and conditioning coach down there, uh, or, you know, kind of at a, at a CrossFit facility. And he sent this guy down to this retreat because, you know, this guy was, was, he's the kind of client you get that really wants to see progress and get great results. Yeah. Um, and T.O. is just like, listen, like this guy, he's worked in the tech industry. He's a great guy, but he's, he's a little soft, you know, like the other people in his training group. He thinks he's hot shit because he's like stronger than these other guys, but he needs to see like a whole other level of, of animals so that he has a, a, something to measure himself by and compare himself to. And, um, you know, I was just all over this guy the whole time. Like, dude, you, you gotta be kidding me. Like, you're not using those weights. Like I wouldn't even let like a 15 year old girl use those weights. Mm. Um, you got to use – I would just bully him around and tell him, like, hey, you got to use these weights. This guy, I think he's, he came down and said, like, his, his max squat was 225 pounds. By the last day, he did six sets of 10 with 225 pounds. Um, so it was kind of like, you know, he needed a new environment. Like, that was the big thing that was missing for him. Uh, he just wasn't – he wasn't being pushed to a place that he had to do some things that he, his willingness to do them was, I don't know, I don't have the right words to say it. Yeah, I, 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 I get, I get what you're trying to say, but it, it is, it is amazing how much we underestimate our capabilities. Cause I'll just give a quick little 
prefacing myself here. I did a, a body transformation program about two and a half years ago, and one of the protocols in it, I've said this in some previous episodes, I might have said to you before, but one of the protocols in it was you basically had to do 50 reps of squat in what was called a diminishing set um, setup. So as the weeks went on, you try to get 50 reps in less sets. And I went from 10 sets of five at 120 kilo to the very last day of that program, squatting 120 kilo for 18, 16, and 16 reps. So 18. Yeah. And like, I'll never forget it. It's, it's actually, I've said this before, it's one of the proudest training feats I've ever done. Like, I was fucked. Like, the bar was on my back for five minutes a set when I was doing 18, 16, 16, because it was breathing squats. It was like, yeah. do, do a squat, take five breaths, do a squat. It was, for, uh, it was, it was torture, like. But then when I racked the bar in, and like we were talking about it after we finished the train program, we were kind of like, we really do like nearly lie to ourselves. Because like, you know, I was like, you know, sets of five at 120 were reasonably heavy. Because that was one and a half times my body weight at the time. And then it was just like, I just squatted 18, 16, and 16, mm. one and a half times my body weight. And it's just like, even though it was torture, it was like, Jesus, doing fives really is pathetic then, isn't it, when you compare it to that? <laughs> Yeah, I, I can completely understand that. I, I think you would like the Phase 3 developmental day in Mass 2 that's called the Deuce, where it's like... Oh, Pat, that's it. I, fuck, I said that to you in a message, you sick bass. We'll talk yeah. about it. Don't worry, people. The Deuce will be spoken about in Part 4. <laughs> but, you know, it's just like, I, you know, coming to New York, like I had, I had been training at Springfield College and also uh, this place, Lightning Fitness in Connecticut, that's like a basically a strongman training center and um the environments in those places were just savage as savage as you could possibly get mm. and then i remember my first day in new york just seeing people that like were wearing like these thousand dollar unitards and like they were the softest people i've ever seen in my entire life Lifting and just gloves. being like oh yeah man and i was just kind of like what the hell did i just step into um you know it's like all of a sudden, I'm in this world of, like, supermodels that are afraid they're going to get too bulky because they're using five-pound dumbbells. And it's like, if you're a dude and you want to get strong and and muscular and powerful and you're trying to work out in that environment, you have almost zero chance unless you are so psychologically different than the rest of the population. Um, you know, so it was just kind of like, Holy crap! No wonder all of these people are weak and they can't hit their goals. They've got they're, the only thing they have to compare themselves against are other people that are weak and kind of pathetic. Like you, you have to be around people that are better than you, and you have to be trying to live up to their abilities if you're going to to really do anything special. And then the next environmental uh, aspect to talk about is. You say another environmental influence I think is critical is actually having a program or a coach. And, you know, this concept of people who work out versus people who train. And you actually then touch into, you know, this there, this was kind of a re- there was a reason where, with this factor of why you didn't actually prescribe any deloads in. Because you basically said, like, I dare you to go 60 weeks without something in your life getting in the way of, you know, your, your, your program. Um, and you were just kind of like, you know, in the end it will all wash out. But let's say, like, personally, I'm myself, I'm a pretty, like, uh, habitual guy. Like, I got a 10-week training block done, no derails in it whatsoever there. So, like, do you think if you did have somebody who had, like, all the time where, let's say, they just make all their money online and they, they've, they have their home gym and they can train until the fucking cows come home, would, would you prescribe some deloads in there then? Yeah, I, I, yeah. At a certain point, like, 
the the thing I see is most people don't have the horsepower to actually like cause do damage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't cause and, the homeostatic disruption like with their trainer. Yeah, so it's kind of like, are you know, can you squat two to two and a half times body weight? Uh, and and you know, are first of all, are you not a tiny human being doing that? Because like, if you're just like a a tiny human being squatting two times body weight, like that's not super impressive. Like, are you somewhere around like ninety kilos plus uh, doing something like that? Now all of a sudden, like I'm like, okay, like that that sort of checks off a box. It's, so I kind of have like boxes that have to be checked off for if you're going to get a deload. Yeah. Number one, are are you strong enough to get a deload? Uh, if you are, okay, we'll think about it. Number two, do you have like do you actually have a situation? Where you're going to be, you could potentially train straight with no disruptions for greater than 12 weeks. If, if again, like that's another check, like, okay, then let's actually think about this. Yeah, yeah. Um, and those, those kind are of like within, the, the within, two big ones. Within the microcycle, though, of mass two, they're kind of it, it, like there is, it, there, it's like a loading, unloading built within the weekly cycle, you know, due to yeah. having. Due to having the, uh, the the stimulation day, like you know, uh, aside of the, um, you know, so again having the developmental day and then the a lactic aerobic day and then your stimulation day, so um, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of yeah, there's there's an undulating and there's sort of a loading unloading built within the microcycle as well, so there is that sort of built into into mass too. Yeah, there you know, it's just like there's holidays that pop up all the time. Um, there's life events. It just like. That's why I don't plug them in. And I think probably coming from like a college background, like you never get kids straight for a long time. Yeah, yeah. You just train them as hard as you can, as often as you can, and you never put in a deload because they've got midterms, they've got finals, they've got break, they've got, you know, travel, they've got everything under the sun. Um, so that's kind of what I'm used to versus like these perfect bubble situations that are, that are very, Unlike, like it's it's just kind of like uh, I just don't see it happen very often. Yeah. Uh, so in but in those particular cases, yes, like that's when you need to consider a deload. Yeah, of course. So again, we go back to those two first points: the environment. So the the sort of the environment you're training in terms of facility and the people that you're surrounding yourself by, or surrounding yourself with when you are going through Masu. And then in turn, the second thing we covered there was to have an actual program or. A coach who's giving you, uh, who's programming for you, so you're not someone who's working out, quote unquote, you're actually someone who's training. The next thing that you talk about is, um, program design, you know, and like how it's very important to have built into your program design this sort of idea of progress that someone can see tangible progress that like they're, they're, they're basically feeding the reward systems within their brain and that's going to help with things like consistency. And as we spoke about in the previous episodes about this, uh, dopaminergic effect of, of, uh, of the 30-30, which I can definitely attain to after coming off a 10-week block of time training. It's funny because I, I came out, so my first five-week block was like 30-30s. My second was density, 10 minutes, like back and forth. And then, and then, oh, man, it, it, a trap bar deadlift military press, unreal. I said in a Facebook post, yeah, I did 151 kilo uh, trap bar deadlift for 66 repetitions in 10 minutes, it, it, was, <laughs> it was, and I, I, I weigh like 78 kilo, and, and so that was a 151 kilo trap bar deadlift, I was pretty happy with that, uh, yeah. and then, but see now, this this has been my first week, kind of, I say in quotations, off time training, 
but I'm still like really I like I'm tying my rest and all, and I'm still like trying to be like I want to get this in, in ten minutes. Like I'm finding it hard to let go because it was so reward. Like when you were doing the session, like you dreaded it at the start, but when you were done, and the fact that it was like two ten minute blocks, it was twenty minute twenty minutes of tough work. Like the way I was doing it was an Olympic movement, uh, a heavy main, uh, main lift, so squat on day one, bench day two, deadlift day three, where my, and then I go into these two ten minute blocks. And like once the hammer blocks were done, like you were panned, but you were like, "Fuck!" I feel you were like you just had an elation feeling. It's so addictive. Yeah. So I can, you know, so this to this point here about your pro pro problems on having like make make sure that there is built in progress so that the person stays consistent. So that's kind of the third factor. I don't know if you want to allude to anything else in that. I think I think um you know, I think sometimes people forget or they they don't think it applies to them. Nobody ever thinks these things apply to them. And, you know, I, I, I always worry about people uh, suffering from terminal uniqueness. Everybody thinks they're different. <laughs> Everybody thinks they're special. That's the and quote of the day, terminal uniqueness. <laughs> that is brilliant. So it, it, I just I think that chances are it's probably going to work for you. And, yeah. and this is a lesson that I learned with it. Like, I've never been the kind of person that writes down my training numbers, you know, uh, like – competing in strongman there was always another show to do and it's kind of like well i have to do these numbers like i like uh, i'll show up for the contest and and that'll tell me all everything i need to know if i win i i win if i come in fourth place i screwed something up uh but in now that i'm not competing in something directly it's kind of like i need to follow a program or i'll get lazy and yeah, yeah. when I am able to see myself going in a specific direction, I want to keep that momentum going. And I'll try harder to do better than I did last time if I'm getting close to that or if I see that happening week to week to week. It just feels so good to do better than last week in the same workout. Um, so, you know, I think that um, – you know, people love CrossFit because they're just working hard and there's an element of randomness and uncertainty. But I think that progress trumps uncertainty mm. every single time in terms of feeling good about uh, what you're doing from an exercise situation. I think progress trumps everything. The, the, the nice thing, too, is the, the concept of your capacity of willpower. So when you don't have to think about, right, what am I doing today? You just, I know exactly what I'm doing now for this five weeks. So every day you walk in, it's just like, boom. And, like, that's one thing we spoke about even with Mass One. Mass One was even so specific. Like, it was just yep. like, listen, there's no fucking uh, dynamic <laughs> warp. There's no dynamic warp. There's no plyos. There's no med ball. There's no speed work. This is just designed to fuck you up. You just go in, do that 31 minutes, get the fuck out, in and out. And because of the constraints... The results are nearly always way better than anything else that you, you would have tried to put together if you if you paralyze yourself by analysis. So uh, which brings us perfectly into the next environmental factor, which is time. And it's it's actually this it just came to my head there just as I was gonna ask to see it because I'm trying to and I've heard, I think I've heard that you say this on another podcast, you were like saying that a metric that's probably gonna become very big within like training is this concept of like looking at power output or, or like power numbers or like, you know, like these certain metrics that are going to like, they're, they're going to show like your performance in certain mm -hmm. areas. Like the thing that I keep going back to is like this idea of volume, intensity, density, total load done in a certain time. Like it, it, someone out there, somebody with maths, a, math, a mathematic background in training, surely has an equation 
where like you divide the load by the time you've done it and you get some sort of like time load factor. Do you know what I'm, do you know what I'm saying? So like what, 100%. What, so for instance, like what's the difference between doing five sets of nine and 100 kilo and nine sets of 500 kilo and both are in 10 minutes? Well, like the nine sets of five has definitely has a different metabolic impact. Than five. So like nine sets of five would have a different, and have the load's the same now, the load's the same. So like nine sets, of, I don't know if I said nine, wouldn't it say 10 sets of five? It would be, anyway, so we'll say 10 sets of five. So I'm doing five sets of 10 or 10 sets of five, 100 kilo, and I have 10 minutes to get, and I do both of them in 10 minutes. They're still going to have a different physiological impact, even though the load is the same, the load done in the time is the same. And then like, say like, and then another thing that's been in my head is, let's say, for instance, I do, because I've been doing this in, uh, in in the train I just done there. Let's say, again, we go back to trap bar deadlift. I do 150 kilo on trap bar deadlift. I do 40 kilo on a military press, and I get 10 sets of five in that in 10 minutes. What then would be the difference between that and then going five sets of 10 with the trap bar, five sets of 10 with the military, and getting that same load, but in a different time? Do you know what I mean? It took longer to get yeah. it in, or something like, you know, my head's kind of still thinking that through, but... This idea of getting that load in, how you got that load in through the sets and reps setup, and then like the time you got in, and then surely there's an equation then to like divide that, because because then I was thinking, Jesus, like we never really conceive like, because then like there's things like oh I got stronger or like I did more weight in that, but it's like yeah, but you, it took you seven and a half minutes longer to get those uh, that extra time because you took longer between sets. So is that did you really get stronger? Because like. You know, do you know what I mean? So I'm just kind of like the, yeah. t- the time element is something I'm trying to think about. I mean, I know that like when when you get into like the hypertrophy research, there's just a lot of things that have been kind of teased out as not mattering. Well, um, there's still, there's still at the minute. I know they're saying that rest periods aren't as important, and they're saying like yeah. because the idea is if you rest too little, your load will drop off because you fatigue. But surely there's a there's a diminishing return also on that. But. So I just look at things from like the biggest of big pictures in yeah. terms of a, a timing perspective. And I say to myself, the only thing that probably really matters is, is volume. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, it, so it's like, can I, can I, how, how much annual volume can I actually handle physiologically? Yeah. Yeah. And can I continue to push my annual volume up year to year to year? But that, that, and, that, is, um, that is, I've had this conversation, that will have a diminished return, like, in terms of, you can only, because, again, there, obviously, there's a, there's a genetic scene into your own strength, but then, obviously, as you start to, like, age, it's going to start dropping down backwards, then. Well, and, and this, this, yeah. this, this is the question I have, so here's a question for you, too, like, I call the, the part, like, it's like the, the paradox of, um, of training, in that, when you're a beginner, you don't need so much volume or stimulus because, like, you're so untrained. And then to become more elite, you need more volume and intensity in a multi-year process as your career goes on. But then you become so you become so well trained that you cause so much damage and destruction every time you train that now your recovery prolongs. And then it's like, well, how do, how do you keep getting that volume and intensity? In? Now, obviously, there's there's then you start to train multiple times a day, but still, then there's a diminishing return where obviously volume is going to have to drop while intensity still either maintains or rises. But then, like, uh, but the volume then just it can't keep going up. And then Stu McMillan, in, in, so if we're going outside of strength training, he was like saying that's where probably variation in the program plays more of a key role than just pure overload, like classical overload. And just talking with James Smith the other day, like he was saying that people think of variation, uh, they don't think about variation as an overload, but he's like it does overload other systems of your body. Like, so he was like, think about like your whole uh, spatial temporal awareness you know, your sensory systems, like when you add variation, that's actually overload to your sensory yeah. systems, which is that we can't measure that metrically, like, you know, like that, oh, five extra kilo went on, like, 
you know, uh, a, you know, an area of a brain cell here that had to work hard, and we can't measure it as as, as well as like globally physically. So, just interesting ideas. Interesting. So, I feel like you're setting me up perfectly for this because oh, I, yes, I I still stick with my same simple: can I increase specific volume over time from an annual perspective thing? And it sounds like the simplest thing in the world. But the more you get into it, the more difficult it becomes to actually pull this trick off. Yeah. All right. So it's kind of like if I have early people, uh, how much specific volume can they handle? Well, it's like they, they need general preparation to be able to eventually handle this these huge amounts of specific volume. You know, because, like, again, I go back to this notion of, like, they don't even have the horsepower to be able to, to do anything with it. Like yeah, it's a, it's yeah, a waste yeah. of time. Um, you're so, so to, you're so weak. I need to build the foundation that would actually get them to the point where they they can do something with it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then it's kind of like, all right, well, that, that's actually, talking, that's actually an interesting point. Uh, I've just had a thought there in my head that actually their volume could keep increasing theoretically. If we're talking about specific volume, like, so you're saying we're doing all this yeah. gen, general volume, to get into specific. So maybe their overall volume to drop, but their specific volume kept going up over a multi-year plan, which, yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's, and, and then so, obviously the intensity, that's very good. Okay. So it's always, I'm always looking for specific volume for whatever the, the goal is to go up. And it's just that I think that it's a non-linear pathway to, to get oh, yeah. to the point where you can see a specific volume rising. Yeah. And it's like, I'm always looking for the things that will sabotage your ability to increase specific volume because it would be so easy to just say, oh, this is, I'll just have you do more of the thing that you need to do in the exact intensity zone that you need to do it in competition and and you're just going to like infinitely continue to progressively get better. And we all know that's, that's crazy. Like So like the downfalls, the pitfalls are typically like the person gets injured, the person has psychological burnout, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. But those are the two big ones. Yeah. yeah. So how can I avoid – uh, the, you know, the physical injury thing. Well, I'm just going to make you as fit as I possibly can. Uh, and that will probably be the biggest rock that I have at my disposal for keeping you physically healthy. So it's, it, and this is where to, to go back to this original point of like, well, you know, if I rest periods don't matter, it's all just about how much volume you accumulate from a strength training standpoint to drive, uh, hypertrophy and this, that, and the other thing. But if, if all of a sudden I add time as a constraint and I make you increase the density of the training session, mm-hmm. I'm going to develop other systems that yeah. might not have anything directly to do with hypertrophy, mm. like you know an oxidative system, other metabolic systems that, that are fitness-related. Uh, and now all of a sudden like you'll have the fitness to be able to withstand the kind of volume that we need for you to handle. Yeah. If I don't pay any attention to rest periods, I could say, hey, I'm following an evidence-based approach, like blah, blah, blah. But I think you're missing the big picture of like you're, you're probably not going to keep your athlete healthy enough to be able to handle more specific volume over time in a progressive fashion. Yeah, and, and like uh, just for the listeners, I, I, I feel that this may be a question I might get back on this is that I'm not and – and you notice I'm not – specifically talking about like and I know you're not talking about either, but I just want to say for this is I'm not specifically talking about like hypertrophy and dip to, yeah. dip to different mechanisms of hypertrophy so we know mechanical versus metabolic versus overall uh, 
muscle damage because the the because an example you can give on that and I've heard Greg Douglas talk about it. So like you know the old classic thing was like, oh what's better, three sets of ten or ten sets of three? And like you know it, it's like once volume was equated in terms of hypertrophy, it didn't matter if you went with more mechanical damage versus metabolic damage. Once overall volume was pretty much the same, and then going off Eric Helms's hierarchy. He actually has rest intervals way down the hierarchy in terms of importance and like you know volume intensity and frequency like are basically the the, the main factors in terms yep. in terms of success in, in strength and, and hypertrophy training. So I, yeah. I know all that and I'm aware of all that. Because I, I, I just look I, at it, Robbie, as direct versus indirect drivers. Yeah. And and I think all these guys do a great job with direct drivers of things, and then they close the book on it and they yeah. forget all about indirect drivers that are supportive in nature. For you to be able to go get those direct drivers. Yeah. But the, the, I suppose where my mind or where the question I'm trying to, and I need to kind of sit down and think and articulate and you, you're kind of, you, you do, you are getting what I'm saying, I think for the most part. Is, yeah. Uh, it, it's kind of like, it, it's, I'm thinking about this as more of a global, like, whole, like, metric sort of like, fitness parameter like have i actually gotten better like you know is like basically has my has my fitness gone up like but you know if you want to use fitness as the all-encompassing turn on what i mean by fitness is like your adaptability so we're going to just go back to like sapolsky and darwin and adaptability and mm-hmm. like my my has my uh what's what's it in super training car my uh uh, what's it? Current adaptive reserves. Has my current okay. adaptive, have my current adaptive reserves elevated? Like, am I more adaptive species? Am I a fitter? Am I a fitter organism? Like, because, so mm. like, has my performance in this gone up due to how the the exercise domain was put together and how I how and, and the time limit that it was done in? Is, is that kind of making sense? So, yeah, so, I, I get all of those things. I think that, that so it's, like, not, it's 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 beyond even like strength and hypertrophy, and it's like yeah. did I did I just am I a fitter, more adaptable organism based off my my previous you know uh, my previous ability to do this work, and then like, if I manipulate some in that work domain unit, how does that change then the expression of the fitness I got from it, kind of that kind of way, and and has have I improved from that, or have I maintained, or have I even gone backwards? That's kind of where I'm getting at. Right. No, I, I, I think that, that that's sort of like I just look at it as two things happening simultaneously that are both true that a lot of people can't deal with because they're divergent in, in thought process yeah. in nature. Yeah. Like I think that the only way you're going to get better at anything is to do more of that thing at the highest intensity level mm-hmm. that you possibly can. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. But good luck doing that because – if you do that, you're going to sabotage the, what you're talking about is this adaptive possibility. You know, like yeah. you're, you're going to become more and more specific, which means that you possess less variability. Yeah. So yeah. You, you need to be variable enough and adaptive enough to get progressively more specific. Mm-hmm. It's like two walls, two oppositional walls closing in on you at the same time. The more specific you get – the more, the less adaptive you get, uh, but the only way you're going to get better at this thing is to become more specific in nature. Uh, but it, you know, if you go too far down that road, then you don't possess some of these prerequisites that keep you healthy enough to continue doing what you're trying to do. Yeah. It's again, it's the same thing. I think we talked about earlier the difference between performance and health. I need you oh. to be health. I need you to be healthy enough to be able to drive performance. Yeah. But if you if you train too much for health, then you didn't do enough performance training to improve performance. Yeah. Uh, yeah. it's this I think it's the same discussion. Mm-hmm. It's a very, very, very good way of putting it. It's 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 again it's something that's been on my mind and 
it's something I need to meditate more on, think, and probably write about it. it and, there, you, know. you know, I think it's one of these things. I don't think there's an answer. Oh yeah, I know. You know what I mean? It's like it's it's and it's like uh, still worth still worth some deep talk. Oh, it's a hundred percent. Like I think that it's the ultimately being okay with the fact that there's no answer to it, and and just like the thing that you need is always the other thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like Buddhism. You just gotta accept that we just don't fucking know. Yeah, but But uh, again, I, I just I do think that. No matter what it is, like, and, and I think that the, the track and field guys, I think they somehow think that, that running fast is somehow different than all other fitness related domains. And, and I don't know if it is. I think that if you're going to run faster, you need to run fast as much as you possibly can. Good Unfortunately, old, good old running, good old yeah, like, Francis. Like running fast is just really difficult to do, um, it, you know. Like, okay, like what's all right? So the the answer is that I just do more sprints at at this at at ninety five to one hundred percent of my top velocity. Yeah, that's the answer. But go ahead and try to do that. Like you're just if you don't set the foundation, if you don't do all these other things, and you try to do that, you're you're just going to run yourself ragged, and you'll be unable to do it it's it's just a, a crazy circular nebulous thing but um I, I i just look at it like if you're going to get faster you have to run fast more frequently it's just to accomplish that there's so many details and variables that you have to account for mm, again that's kind of where i suppose discussion of variation as the overload kind of comes in more so than just like traditional progressive you know, overall and physical systems, again, as you said, like, you can't keep doing that as much. But uh, I would say, side note, that Stu McMillan would actually disagree with that in terms of you have to, you have to, like, he, he was one area he disagreed with Charlie Francis on. Stu doesn't believe you have to constantly sprint at, at like, you know, 95% and above all the time to improve. For And for it, he would have done a lot of sub-maximal stuff with Andre de Grasse uh, leading into Rio, like, and, and, um, and obviously Andre had a pretty good Olympic seat of silver in the two and a, a bronze in the, in the 100. But, uh, it's kind of this concept, you know, if you look at maybe at some of the, the raw powerlifters who've been around the last while, so the likes of Chad Wesley Smith and Israel, they would say very similar things. Like, they, they would disagree with this kind of the West Side model of always, you know, being 90 to 95% above. They would kind of look at a more phase potentiation where you do a lot of work so maximally to, to peak eventually. So it's just different concepts and ideas. Um, it, it is. I, 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 I'm open to saying that, like, I certainly – like success speaks louder than any theory, mm. you know, and, um, and there's a lot of ways to do, to get the job done. Yeah. But yeah. it's, it's just tough for me. I, I, I just think in, in terms of principles, like we don't have that many training principles. We've got four. We've got specificity, individual differences, reversibility, and overload. Uh, and, and that's the things that you always have to come back to. With with everything from, from variation on a principle in your book, it's not. I, I mean, it's not even my book. These are just like accepted exercise physiology training principles. Just there's four of them. Um, I've got like seven or eight in some books. Really? Yeah. I, I mean, like that's those are the big four standard ones that I've I've seen. Hmm. Um, 
So it's I, I and those are the ones that I I typically go with. So mm-hmm. uh, it's just kind of like I just think it's difficult to do specificity. Like I just I think it's it's hard oh, to do it's, it. It's the paradox. Specificity and variation is a paradox. I mean, it, yeah. You know, we obviously know specificity is probably probably it's up there as being the most important. Uh, I I personally think it's king. That's just kind of where I stand. Well, I, I would say that too. But Franz Bosch would actually argues variation in his book. But uh, when you get when you get to a certain elite level, but uh, and also Israel, uh, Mike Israel, and Chadwick Smith, James Hoffman, not Jay Hoffman, or James Hoffman, different guy. They wrote that book, Scientific Principles, Strength Training, and they have a seven principle hierarchy. And from most important to least important, it was uh, specificity, overload, fatigue management, basic recovery. Uh, stimulus adaptation recovery curves variation phase potentiation individuality that was their seven seven step hierarchy in the principles so that that, 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 that was an interesting one but uh, yeah. yes, to me specificity is generally you know the king of specific adaptation falls demands if you want to get better at something you better do that something and the more elite you get the more you're going to have to start doing that but it becomes the paradox then that you know if, if all you do is that then you come up against what's called uh, adaptive resistance or accommodation, as Louis Simmons would call it. I mean, that's a biological law. I mean, in, in nutrition, that's insulin resistance. You keep fucking spiking insulin, you become insulin resistant. So the only way to to get to, to get you more insulin sensitive is to take insulin down. Or, or Mike Israel uses the example of if all you do is high rep training, you eventually st- you, you stagnate to high rep training. So he's like, that's why he recommends his bodybuilding clients to do some low rep strength work so that they resensitize themselves to high rep work. And he's like, when they go back to high rep work, they're sore as shit then because they've resensitized to it. See, I still think that even with all of these things, it's just clever ways to get back to being able to handle specificity. Yeah. No, oh yeah, 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 it is. Yeah. And I think, I think we're probably saying much the same thing. Yeah. Uh, and, and a lot of these other people are saying the same thing. It's, it's just, uh, you know, it's it's one of these ones where we're all kind of barking up the same tree, but we're just arguing about how we go about doing our barking. It's the blind man and the elephant. We're all feeling the elephant, but we're all different parts. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. You uh, you must have to go, do you? Do you have to... Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. perfect. I... No, it's perfect. Because I, 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 as I said to you in the last uh, episode, I, I love doing these little chunks because, again, we... I mean, we just, so basically today we nailed down a polyvagal theory and environment, which is perfect. So that's going to lead us into the next time when we get together whenever we can, sometime in the new year. We're going to talk about uh, uh, CrossFit and Olympic lifts when it comes to mass and, and the famous Ben House quote here, which is hilarious, which we'll read out in the next one. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so good. Oh, it's so it's... good. That's coming, people. Uh, you did a great interview with Tony Gentlecore. Oh, and I must take this up with you in the next episode. About about your ranking of the Rocky movies, I, I'm in disagreement with some of them. That's perfect. I'm That's in, perfect. I'm in it's 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 yeah. always good when other people uh, vocalize their errors in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> you mean your errors, you bollocks! Uh, all right, and then and then we'll see we'll see how far we get along that episode. And then if we have time, then we're going to start touching into the developmental days, the a lack of road days, and the stim and the stimulation day and Remembering that uh, Mastu is a four-day program, but it has three specific days, two developmental, one stimulatory, and the aerobic. So mm. we'll be looking forward to that. And then probably it'll be a, definitely another episode where I, I want to get you back on. And like I'm going to like grill you about why you designed this way and why do you write your programs that way, and you go this for this. I think that'd be great as a case study too. You know, this is why I think that, that that's actually something I'm going to do more in my podcast. Is here's a program and here's the reason why we did this program this way. That's yeah, that's pretty good stuff. Yeah, I think when, that'd be when good. Do we get into that. 
yeah, I think that's good for listeners too, particularly young, younger coaches coming up too, you know. Um, and something I've been thinking about too, just even in my mind today, and I think you'll you'll be definitely one person I, I'd love to take part in this. Not so much a project because it's like it's not monitoring just for the podcast, but I definitely want to start doing more podcasts where we cover like just more science, you know, mm. like like you know muscle physiology, like and they could be just half an hour ones. But there's no good resource out there for any like young, you know, sports scientists or coach where it's just like I just want a good informative listen on here's muscle physiology, here's biomechanics, right. here's biomechanics, here's you know this that we can touch into you know, just basic like little thirty minutes, you know, at, you know talking about say like, muscle physiology. You know, like, here's the muscle, here's the fascicle, the fascicle is a bundle of fibers, and the fibers you have, you know, the myofibrils break into myofilaments, and we get lactomycin coupling and all that type of stuff, and, you know, the different tissues, the uh, epi, uh, peri, and endomycin. And I think those little things would be good, you know, and, and why it's important to know and stuff like that. So, I mean, are, you, you're, are, you're, are, you, are you opening your, your zipper to your pants there, or is that a laptop zipper? That was a laptop zipper. <laughs> Right, Pat Davidson, you got to go to work. I realize that. So for the listeners, guys, another absolutely savage episode with the beast that is Pat Davidson. I absolutely love this guy, and I can't wait till we meet. Uh, till we meet again in person, it's, uh, it'll be epic. And uh, by the way, we must share the Borg story. Have we shared the Borg? Oh, we did share the Borg story. Did we on the podcast? Yeah, before? I yeah. think so. I yeah. think so. Assimilate, yeah. assimilate and die, my friends. All right, but for now, everyone listening, as I always say, I'll talk to everyone soon. Take care, be well, and stay strong. Thank mm-hmm. you.